Okay, we are continuing our, our series through Mark, and we've been in a three-part mini-series on the end times, because in this section of Mark, Mark talks about the last days. And so we've entitled this sermon, The Last Days According to Jesus, Part 3, and I explained on week one that this is kind of like a personal tribute to R.C. Sproul. Uh, because he has a book called The Last Days According to Jesus. And, uh, you know, R.C. Sproul, you know, he might have a different eschatology in certain areas in that book. But at the end of the life, one thing that I look at R.C. Sproul is that God used him to point so many of us to Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and God used R.C. Sproul to, to help so many of us work through the doubts of the Christian faith and to work through what it means to be a Christian. And so if you don't know R.C., you know, you've met the real Christ, R.C., uh, but you've got to meet another R.C., real Calvin. No, I'm just kidding. R.C. Sprawl. Read his books. He's gone home to be with the Lord, but read him and understand what it means to think through your faith, right, in this world. So I, I love R.C. Sprawl. Some of you guys love R.C. Sprawl and Ligonier Ministry, but this is our little tribute, FCBC, to R.C. Sprawl. Um, today we're going to see four things, four truths We'll put it in a question format, but four truths about Jesus' return. And these four truths are important, right? These four truths are what happens when he returns, right? What happens when he returns? What will certainly take place before he returns? When will he return? And how do we prepare for his return? And so the reason why it's important to think through these things is because according to Jesus, we are living in the last days. When Jesus says his coming is near or when the end is coming, he, he's kind of using this big, broad, symbolic term to say the entire church age is the last days. Right? We're in the last days because he hasn't returned yet, but he wants us to live with, with foresight. He wants us to know the scripture so that we can, we can be expecting his coming, but he wants us to live in light of that sovereign moment of his sovereign return. And so it would be tragic, it would be a tragic deception to go through life as if everything is just normal without any warning that Christ would return, right? And then when he returns, if we are caught spiritually not ready, right, spiritually we're not ready for him, then I think that would be tragic. But for Bible-reading Christ followers... For those of us who say, okay, God, we want to know when you return, so we're going to look to your word, and we want to be ready for Bible-reading Christ followers when you hear of many wars. Like, you, you hear war. Rather than getting fearful, you're like, you know what? We, you know, the Bible has told us, Jesus has warned us that there will, there will always be discussion and threat of war. And so, and so we are concerned. We pray, but we are not shaken to the core. It doesn't destroy our faith. Why? Because we have scripture that tells us, hey, as, as we move towards the day when Christ will return, there will be wars and there will be natural disasters. And, you know, I, I see this on social media where people are like, man, natural disasters are, are getting worse and worse and worse. Man, man, is this the end of the world, right? And, and if they're Christian, then they're coming from a certain perspective. I don't think we should go out there living this like gloom and doom kind of, you know, everyday mindset where everything's so pessimistic. But if you're a Christian, you are not worried. You're concerned, but, but, but you're, you're thinking through. You're like, you know what? The Bible talks about this. Jesus warned us that as we draw near towards his coming, there'd be more and more natural disasters. And so, so we aren't surprised because we have scripture. As we look at history, 
as his story through the lens of Jesus' teaching and the New Testament and the Old Testament, we have guidance for what it means to live as everyday believers. So if you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And let's be informed by Jesus so that we can live in this world, anticipating his second coming, but also not being fearful when when disaster or terrorism or destruction or warfare happens or the increase of persecution, because all these things are things that Jesus prepares us for. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Uh, because of, a, of the length of the passage, I am just going to read it as we, as we get to each section. Okay, I'm not going to do a formal public reading of Scripture today, but we, again, we're going to see four truths about Christ's return. The first thing we're going to see in verses 24 to 27, the first thing we're going to see is what happens. Right. So what, I, what I'm going to read to you, is answering this question. What happens? And my answer is going to be crazy. So, okay, so let's, let's look at it, okay? Uh, it's going to be crazier than the Chargers winning the Super Bowl one day. So look at, look at, uh, and it's going to happen, okay? Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, that's what we talked about last week, right? But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So what's the main thing that happens. Well, Jesus returns. That's the main event. But why does he return? It kind of gives you a why in here. It's to gather the church, to gather believers from, from all of history, right, who have believed in either the promise of the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament, the dead in Christ, we, we believe will be raised and will be ushered into the eternal kingdom. We believe those alive will be gathered. But Christians from every age, the elect of God will be gathered by the angels and brought to worship our king as he establishes his eternal kingdom, right? Starting with the first part of that kingdom being a millennial reign. But what's going to happen? Notice that verse 24 picks off where we left off last week, the tribulation. And tribulation is where the abomination of desolation happens. And last week we talked about a future antichrist. We talked about how 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 13 talks about a man of lawlessness, a beast, figuratively, being a world leader who will lead a federation of nations against God and against God's people. He will be utterly deceptive. Uh, there will be a false prophet who will also help deceive people, and that is the tribulation period. During that time, there will be massive persecution of anybody who believes in God or who doesn't worship. Anybody who doesn't worship the Antichrist will be persecuted. But we also know that during that time, there will be a lot of warfare. There will be famine. There will be a lot of uh, turmoil. And then that will lead into a time of great natural disaster and cosmic upheaval. And it's going to get so bad, like birth pains, right? Birth pains increase and increase at first birth pains are just a little bit. You can, you can, oh, contraction. Okay, it's not time to go to the hospital yet, right? Oh, contraction. Okay, okay, 30 seconds apart, you know. And then all of a sudden, as you get to the hospital, you're, oh, I need my epidural, you know. And, and, and then, finally, you know, finally, it's so painful. What is it? Those final pushes. 
And so that's kind of what you're seeing throughout Scripture, that, that, that the world, Romans talks about the world groaning in pain until the new creation is given birth, right? So this entire cosmos is going to be renewed. And, and, and when you get to that end before Jesus comes back, not only is human, uh, the human, the, the nation's going to be at war and raging, but this world is going to be collapsing, you know, in terms of natural disaster and cataclysmic disaster. And that's kind of what you see. And so you saw that last week. If you, if you missed the sermon, you can get it on our YouTube page. But, but we talked about the birth pains and how it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And, and that's why it's so dramatic. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars falling from the heaven. I mean, if you were to take this literally, it would be the end of the world. But if you were to take this symbolically, it would still symbolize the end of the world. Right? Because, because what would this symbolize? It's so destructive. And so in, in, notice in verses 24 and 25, it says that after the horrible days of the tribulation, Christ will return to earth in glory. His return will be accompanied by cosmic upheaval and cataclysmic judgment. Right? So where does Jesus get this language from? I'm going to give you four passages now. And there's more than four passages, but the reason why I want you to see this repetition is I want you to understand how Jesus helps his disciples and helps us to understand the Bible, okay? Back when the Old Testament was written, there were, it was written down, right? It was written down somewhere. They had scrolls, you know, you know, we know that it was written down where the law of God was read publicly for the people to hear. But it wasn't like today where every single person had their own personal scroll, like their own Bible or their own smartphone with the Bible on it. So how was the Bible taught? It was read and it was heard. And parents would teach the Bible to their children. Jewish parents would teach the Bible to their children through oral tradition. They would speak it. Right, so, so then, so then you would, maybe you wouldn't memorize per se, like every single word verbatim. You, you would want to try to memorize the law, the Torah and stuff. But all of a sudden, all these stories would weave together. And, and so if you're a New Testament Jew, when you hear these terms, you're gonna think of Joel and Isaiah, and you're gonna think of the prophets. And then very clearly, the disciples would interpret Jesus as, oh, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about that day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of great judgment on Israel's enemies and on God's enemies. And the day of the Lord is also a day of deliverance for God's people. So all of Israel anticipated the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, again, it's a day of judgment upon God and his, God's enemies and the, and the enemy of God's people. It was also a, a day of great deliverance for God's people where the Messiah would come back. Now, now let me give you a few of these. So, the first one, Joel 2.10, right? In Joel 2.10, the context is the coming day of the Lord. It says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. This is verbatim almost what Jesus is, is teaching his disciples, right? He's saying, when I come back, this is what's going to happen. It is the day of the Lord. So Jesus is now teaching his disciples everything that you heard as good Jewish children growing up in Jewish homes. Everything that you heard about the day of the Lord, that's actually the day of my second coming. Oh, so it's not now? Oh, so, so the kingdom is not going to be established now? So, so, so this is not the end of the world now? No, 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 no. There's going to be a church age, right? He doesn't say that verbatim, but he's kind of setting them up that it's going to be my second coming, Jesus says. It's going to be at my return that these things are going to happen. Right? Look, look at Joel um, 3.15. Right? Joel 3.15. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, 
It's another passage describing the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13.10. Isaiah 13.10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Right? So Jesus is drawing right from the prophets. Talk about the day of the Lord. Oops, sorry. I don't know why it's like that. I'm not good with PowerPoint. I like to point to the power of God's word. Okay, but um, I'm good uh, with paper. <laughs> but Isaiah 34, 4, it says God's judgment. This The context here is God's judgment on the nations, right? The day of the Lord. And so Isaiah 34, 4 says, All the hosts of heavens shall rot away. So that's like all the stars are gone. And the skies roll up like a scroll. So the sky, just imagine that the sky just disappears. Okay? And their hosts shall fall. So all the stars, the sun, the moon just fall. And the leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. And I use that because Jesus uses the fig tree as an illustration. But just to throw that in there for you. But you see now four examples from the Old Testament where Jesus doesn't actually quote each one. Right? But what is he doing? He's drawing common imagery from the prophets as a whole that describes the day of the Lord. And so that's how we understand Jesus is teaching in the New Testament. Jesus is not referring to one passage, but he's saying basically to his disciples, you've heard sprinkled throughout the prophets different imagery talking about the end of this world. And the end of the world will come with the coming of the Messiah. Now Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm teaching you now that when these things happen, it's actually my second coming. I will return. Right now, go back to Mark if, you're, if you've turned away. And um, notice in verse 26, now in Mark, how the second coming will be visible for everyone on earth to see. It says that Jesus will come in a cloud, and everybody will see him. Now, I'm not going to give you the reference for this. I, I mean, I'm not going to show you the verbatim verse, but in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, it describes the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So, so Jesus is just, just referring to himself as he is that glorious son of man that's going to come back on the clouds, right? Notice in verse 27 of Mark 13 that when he returns, he will send his angels to gather his elect from every corner of the world. So remember the day of the Lord is a great day of judgment upon God's enemies, but it's a great day of deliverance where God comes once and for all to vindicate his people. The, the Yahweh represented by the son of God by the second person of the Trinity, right? Jesus Christ comes back in full power and glory and he comes and redeems and vindicates and delivers his people once and for all, right? He comes to establish his eternal reign and he gathers his elect, saints from every age, to worship him. And so this is the sovereign return of God. So what's going to happen when he returns? He's going to come. There's going to be cataclysmic disaster. There's going to be cosmic upheaval, and then he's going to come and gather his elect from all ages. That's what's going to happen, right? What will certainly take place? What will certainly take place is is point number two. So point number one, what will happen when he returns? Point number two, what will certainly take place? We see this in Mark 13, verses 28 to 31. Okay, look at verse 28. Mark 13, verse 28. It says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. So this is a parabolic illustration again, right? As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. And I believe that's talking about his second coming, though there's some debate over that, okay? And then verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. First, I want to mention a few things before we explain it. Verse 31 is where I pull this, this idea of certainly happen. Right? What's the point Jesus is trying to make? Right? He's trying to say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words are certain. They will not pass away. So Jesus' prophetic prediction of what will happen is going to be, is going to become fulfilled. It is going to happen. Right? It will certainly happen. Now, the challenging thing about point number two is that verse 30 creates a problem. In fact, verse 30 is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture and surely one of the most difficult passages in uh, Mark. So I'm going to take some time, but I'm not going to take all the time in the world. You'll have to study it on your own. But first, let's tackle the easy illustration, then we'll, we'll deal with the, the problem, Okay. So the first thing is this illustration. Jesus uses a fig tree to illustrate the sign of a, the signs of an event to come. Because in Palestine, fig trees would blossom later than other trees. So back then in Palestine, and maybe even today, right? Fig trees would, would begin to bear fruit later. In the later part of spring, that, that's when they would begin, their, their leaves would begin to show. So towards the later part of spring, you begin to see these fig leaves develop. And Jesus' illustration is simple. He's saying, all, everything that I talked about in Mark 13 are signs. And he says, when you see those signs, it's going to be like those leaves. You know that summer is coming. So for, for in Palestine, when you see these leaves begin to blossom, you're like, okay, it's going to get hot soon. Summer is coming. It's the end of spring. It's, it's like a signal, right? And Jesus is using that illustration and saying, when you see these signs, it means that he is coming. But here's the problem, verse 30, right? Well, let's look at verse 29. First, verse 29, notice that Jesus says, when you see these things taking place, it's like the leaves of the fig tree, you know that he's near, just like summer would be near, at the very gates. And then in verse 30, Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so if you read that naturally, you're like, well, Jesus is talking about his disciples. And his disciples are all dead. They live through the pages of Scripture, but they're dead. They passed away. Jesus' contemporary generation passed away, and, and, and we've never seen this cataclysmic, you know, crazy cosmic upheaval, and we haven't experienced the second coming of Christ. So there's a problem. What do we do here? And this has created crazy debate as to what generation means, right? Now, it's so crazy that how many of you guys sitting in here right now have your ESV study Bible? Anybody have an ESV study Bible on you right now? Okay, you look at the comments, awesome, and there are five viable options, correct? You look at the commentary. The ESV study Bible is the best, in my opinion, one of the best study Bibles ever put out. And the ESV study Bible gives you five strong arguments, five and one of the five has three or two or three variations. It has like a A, B option. And so this is, this is challenging, right? So what, what I want to do is time does not per, permit me to present or to argue each view. I want to give you an idea of how people have tried to interpret it. And then this morning, I'm going to have you consider one interpretation, but not be dogmatic about it, okay? So people have said, okay, generation, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Generation refers to age of the church. 
And so Jesus is not talking about the disciples' generation passing away, but he's talking about the entire church age. Just that this generation of church will not pass away until you see all these signs. I think that's, that's hard. So I, I looked at the media context, looked at the surrounding context, looked at all of Mark. It just, just, just no strength to that interpretation. Okay. The second one is people say, oh, generation, Jesus doesn't tell them, but he's really talking about the end times. He's talking about the final generation before he returns, because obviously that's the only generation that's going to see all this crazy stuff happen. Now, that has the warrant of common sense, but interpretively, hermeneutically, it's, it's really hard to force that in. Okay? A, a third interpretation is that it, generation really means race, and Jesus is talking about the Jewish people will not pass away you know, until he comes back and deals with them in the end times. And that too, you're, you're kind of reading in, you're like, well, does generations mean race? Why doesn't he just use ethnos or nations or ethnic groups? Right, so, so what is Jesus talking about? And then, and then another interpretation is he's talking about what's actually going to happen in the lifetime of his disciples or that generation, meaning the events leading up to AD 70. Okay, and, and I actually think that is hermeneutically, exegetically, meaning interpretively, the strongest argument. Okay, and so, so, so let me present that to you, yet I am a futurist. I believe in a, in, in a future tribulation. I believe in a future millennium. So, so let me help you understand how, you know, I, I think this is the, the strongest view to consider. Okay, first, nowhere does Jesus, so you're going to have to read very carefully your Bible, but nowhere does Jesus promise in this passage that he's going to return in any specific time or generation. Right, notice that. He never says the words, this generation will not pass away until I, like, you know, like I'm going to return. Right, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say I'm going to return in this generation. Nothing. He says these things will happen before I return. Okay, so what are these things? So signs are going to happen before his return. So we're, so now we got to figure out what are these things that are going to happen before he returns. The second thing is that I don't think his return is a sign of his return, and I don't think the cataclysmic events are a sign of his return. Those things are part of his return. So I don't think Jesus, when he says these things, he's not talking about anything in verses 24 to 27. Because when, when and that leads to this, I want you to consider this, that the cataclysmic events are not signs of his return because it's too late. When they happen, when you see the, the sun being darkened, the moon falling, human life is going to die, right? At that point, Jesus has already returned. It's too late. So he's talking about when you see these things, I am near. He doesn't say when you see these things, then you know I'm already, I've already arrived, right? So I don't think he's talking about anything in verses 24 or 27. I think that the signs of Jesus' return are part of his return. You know, I, I mean, the cataclysmic events the, are not signs of Jesus' return. They are, they are part of his return. The cosmic upheaval, all of that, it's part of his return. Jesus is referring instead to things that happen before he comes back. Signs that would warn you to be ready for his return. And fourthly, I want you to consider that in verses 29 and 30, when he says these things, and then he says all these things must happen, and you will see all these things before this generation passes away, and he's talking to his disciples, I think he's pointing back to verses 5 to 13, because it's in, it's, it's, we broke it into three sermons, but this is one long conversation, right? And he's talking about the things that precede the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Why do I think this is the strongest argument? Because if you're one of his disciples, you're probably thinking, he's probably talking to me. 
And, and when he says this generation, he could have said anything else. But he says this generation will not pass away until you see these things happen. And you go back to original context. Go back to chapter 14, verses 1, uh, chapter 13, verses uh, 1 to 2. And remember the topic. The main topic is Jesus points at the temple and says the temple is going to fall. And then you look at his disciples in verses 5 to 13. They said, well, Jesus, what are the signs? When is this going to happen? And he gives them five signs. He gives them five signs. He says, you know, I'm not going to give you all of them again. You can get that on our YouTube page. That's week one of our sermon. But but he says there's going to be a great, you know, there's going to be false messiahs. There's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be famine. Uh, There's going to be family and political persecution. And the gospel will reach the nations and it will reach the Gentiles. It will go beyond Jerusalem to the borders, beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. So all of this, right, all of this stuff, all of it we explain in in week one of our series, it all happened before AD 70. And in, in AD 70, the horrible type of abomination of desolation happened, where Titus led the Romans to destroy the temple and destroy all of Jerusalem. And that actually happened in the generation that Jesus is talking to. So I think that the strongest interpretation is that Jesus is talking about what he mentioned in chapter 13, verses 5 to 13. He's saying, you disciples will see all, a, at least a type of fulfillment of all of these horrible things that are going to lead up to the destruction of the temple. So you guys can be ready to flee Jerusalem when you begin to see no that, that that is happening. But it says he is near. And I think that's Christ. So what is Jesus already teaching his disciples? Something that you and I have had to reckon with. That, he, that, that when Jesus says his coming is near, just like it says at the end of Revelation, it doesn't mean tomorrow. It doesn't even mean a thousand years from now or a hundred years from now. Like we just don't know. I mean, his coming has been near. It is still near. It will be near tomorrow. So when Jesus says near, he leaves it open. And, and it means a very, very long time. And all this goes to show, and I, I think the reason why I think this is a strong position is that if the temple didn't fall, I wouldn't believe that he's coming back, right? Like you could think that way. But it's almost like when you see this happening, remember the context, it's the beginning of the birth pains, not the end. When you see for us, in human history, that Jesus predicted that in specifically in his generation, the temple would fall. And we look back, and it did happen. In AD 70, we have further confirmation that he is coming back because the first, uh, whatever, block fell. Meaning Jesus predicted precisely in history what would happen. It happened in history, meaning his coming is near. The temple fell. It's coming anytime soon, and we believe it's future, we believe it hasn't happened yet, we believe there's going to be greater tribulation, we believe that Titus was just a type of abomination of desolation, that there will be a future antichrist that will fulfill the final abomination of desolation, but we can be certain because the temple fell that Jesus is coming back. So don't be asleep. And that's how I I read all of Mark 13, and that's how I understand it. Right? Furthermore, Mark 11, Jesus used the fig tree to illustrate the condemnation of Israel's religious system and their religious leaders, and this fits with the context of the destruction of the temple. And most importantly, I think 
we had a sermon discussion and I heard all the other pastors are going to present it this way too. So I just didn't want to present a <laughs> contrasting view. But we all agree that this is probably the strongest way to interpret it. So how we understand point number two, even though it's challenging, is that it is a powerful assurance that Jesus will return, that his coming is near. It's, it's summer is coming. We just don't know when. Okay, and that leads us to point number three. Point number three is, is when will he return? Guys, I just want to tell you, no one knows the day or hour. Throughout American history, there have been people that try to predict, and they're always wrong, right? They're like, Jesus is going to come back in the year 2000. You know, get all your water ready, buy a tank, and put it in your, in your garage. I mean, it's just, it hasn't happened. You know, people predicted, like, you know, didn't Al Gore try to predict something? I don't know. You know, I don't want to throw him under the bus. But, but, but you know, liberals and, and crazy people have tried to predict that the Lord's coming back at a certain specific time. And, and they've never been right. All right, so when will he return? Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Now, now, now Jesus adds a statement to to double down on this, he says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, the point of saying no one knows the day or hour, not even the Son, this is not a theological statement about the limitation of Jesus' knowledge. This is not a statement about the limitation of Jesus' divine nature. Here, Jesus is speaking during his earthly ministry, and he's affirming his willingness to submit to his Father. And on earth, as Jesus is saying these words, keep in mind that he has temporarily set aside the fullness of his divine power. And throughout his time on earth, Jesus only used his divine nature when it was the will of his Father to do so. And Jesus completely throughout his earthly ministry submits to the will of God the Father. And so you see here the submission of the Son to his Father and here he's just saying, he says, only my father, my father in heaven knows. But I'm here on earth, and, and, and no, no one knows the exact time or hour. Now, I believe that now Jesus is back in glory, that he knows. Right? But it's not Mark's point to get in a, into a theological excursus on the nature of the son's eternal submission to the father. I'd love to talk to you about that, by the way, the eternal submission of the, of the son to the father. But let's have coffee over that. Okay. Um, the point is further illustrated in verses 33 and 37, and we see this point number four. So when will he return? No one knows the day or hour. But point number four is how do we prepare for his return? And I think this is where we get into good application, right? How do we prepare for his return? How do we prepare? Notice Mark 13, verse 33. It says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man. So here's another parabolic illustration, right? It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. So think of stewardship. Think of calling. Think of spiritual gifts. Yes, I'm reading this. Into, you know, think of, think of your spiritual gifts. Think of your God-given skills. And Jesus saying, look, you know, how are you going to apply this? Right? He leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And I, I believe this is 
you know, when you put application to this, it's talking about spiritually asleep, right? Because Jesus can come back when you're exhausted and asleep in the middle of the night. He's talking about spiritually asleep. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I want you to see four imperatives. There's four times where, where the original Greek uses a command. Be on guard. Keep awake. Right? Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. There might be another one, but these are the main ones, right? And then it says, uh, again, in ver- at the end of verse 37, stay awake. So stay awake twice. Be on guard. Keep awake. So this is not an option. Jesus is commanding every genuine disciple to be spiritually awake. Uh, some practical theologians have referred to this as spiritual wakefulness. And I looked it up, and I guess that's a word. You know, spiritual wakefulness. And there's a parabolic illustration. It's pretty straightforward. Right? I think you understand that the master of a house goes on a trip, and he leaves his servants in charge with certain responsibilities. And, and when he comes back, you know, they should be fulfilled. These responsibilities should be fulfilled, or they should be manning their station. Now, the doorkeeper is a powerful illustration. Because the purpose of a doorkeeper, what's a doorkeeper do? Right? It sounds like something from the Matrix. Oh, I just dated myself. But the, the, the doorkeeper basically looks out for the arrival of the master. And when the doorkeeper sees the master coming from afar, the doorkeeper says, the master is coming. Get the house ready. And he's ready to welcome the master in to his home. I know this is meant to be a parable, and I know it's meant to be, uh, you know, it's meant to be interpreted simply as an illustration, but I think we have to draw application from it. So even though it's symbolic, you got to draw application from it. And it makes total sense that Jesus comes back, right, for his kingdom and his people. And so he's left all of his elect with spiritual gifts, like I said, with God-given skills, and he's given us a mission. He gave us all the great commission to make disciples. He, he's called us to be part of his church. He's called us to be salt and light in this world. And we have to be wakeful and watchful. And when he comes back, we have to be ready spiritually that, that look, you know, we, you don't want him coming back and like we're, we're, we're totally unrepentant and, and we said, oh, I didn't know you were going to come back. I thought that you, we had more time, right? You want to be ready to welcome him back because you can see him coming from afar because he's giving you warning that when he comes back, you say, Jesus, we're ready for your arrival. We're ready, Lord. You've given us responsibilities as our master. You are our Lord. And we have a personal calling, right? And, and, and so, so I, I want to put some things before you. First, let me give you the big idea. Okay, oh, well, be, be on guard, be ready, stay awake spiritually. Here's the big idea. Be watchful and ready because Christ will return at any moment. We have to believe this, right? His, his coming is near. That be watchful and ready because Christ will return at any moment, even if we pass away and Jesus still doesn't come back, he still wants us to live as if he's coming back tomorrow. Right? We must be ready. And this is so convicting. You know, uh, when, we, when we hear of the, the, the church vision, when, when we hear of like, like the strategies and the ministries of our church, uh, you know, I had to learn, right? I had to learn. And I'm growing. I'm, I, I am not a strong, you know, whatever, manager, leader type of guy. I'm a nerd that studies the Bible, that studies five views, right? Um, and so when I heard the vision, I'm like, you know, this is the vision. Let's go tell people to do it. <laughs> but you know what the, the crazy thing is I had to learn? You know, that means that I'm calling you to the church's vision, 
which is not bad, and I'm calling you to the pastor's plural vision. And, and that may help you, but, but that's different from you answering to the Lord. And so I'm going to talk about our vision very differently. It's still there. We're still going to push forward. But I don't want you to be like, hey, pastor, what's your strategy? You know, what are the pastor's strategy? That's what we want to do. I, I think we, we, we as pastors have to come up with some plans and we'll communicate it to you, right? But I think the most powerful thing for you is to, like I said, you need to, one, surrender and consider, is Jesus your Lord? Because you don't answer to me or you don't answer to any vision statement or you don't answer to our pastors. You answer to the Lord, Jesus. He's the master. He's coming back. He's given you responsibilities that I don't know about. He's also giving you trials in life. I mean, right, right, there's struggles in life. And so Jesus is your Lord. He is. And some of you this morning, your application of this sermon is, Jesus, are you my Lord? Or, or are you just, you know, the Sunday Savior? And I hope that I would go to heaven. And so, so I really press you to consider that. Is Jesus your Lord? That's step one. Step two is, if Jesus is your Lord, you have a personal calling to live for him. That means when cancer comes, you're basically saying, Jesus, I have cancer, but you're still my Lord. When, when marital conflict happens and you have to work through it, you're, you're saying, Jesus, you're still my Lord. When, when good times come, you're like, Jesus, you're my Lord. You gave me all this. When, when, when you're having a hard time with your teenagers or, or, or you're dealing with loneliness in life or, or you lost your job, Jesus is still your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. You answer to him. And then if you go through that, then you're like, well, God, what are the God-given skills that you've given me? What am I passionate about? You know, because each of you have that. And then, and, 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 and you begin to ask, God, what are my spiritual gifts that you've given to me? And when you combine your life experience, even the trials that you go through with your God-given skills and your spiritual gifts, I mean, that is a sweet spot where then you begin to say, God, what are you calling me to do? And who are you calling me to be in the church and in the world? And if all of you guys were responding to the primary calling of Jesus Christ as your Lord, then this church would be crazy vibrant. You'd be exercising your spiritual gifts. Ministry fair would be plugging people into where they're gifted. And that would be the church. That would be a vibrant church that would no doubt reproduce vibrant churches. And so then it doesn't become the pastor's plan for the English congregation. It becomes God's plan for each of your lives. I answer to the Lord on how I need to love God and love, love people passionately, right? And for me, it's to preach sermons and to shepherd you. you, you yours might be to, to lead a community group or to care for the person in your community group or, or, or to serve in a different way. And, and, and I think that that's how we constantly be watchful and ready because we know that we answer to a Lord, a personal Lord, that's going to come back at any moment and he's going to call us to account. And I don't think he's going to be like, oh, you didn't do A, B, C, and D, so you're not going to be, you're not saved. That's not the guilt, right, that he wants us to live with. But, but, but he says, you know what, I've given you a calling and I'm going to work you through it. And when you realize what your calling is, personal calling in life, then you understand that when suffering comes, yeah, when tribulation comes, when disaster is natural, I mean, you are going to be like, Jesus, you're still my Lord. And that's the crazy thing, because this is the Gospels. You move into the epistles, and what are the apostles doing? The apostles are preaching to the church, writing letters and saying, you're being persecuted. Remember, don't fall away from our Lord. You're suffering. Don't fall away from our Lord. 
what do you think Jesus is saying to the, the, the church in East Asia right now, in China, right? You're being persecuted by the government, but your calling is to the Lord. Don't fall away from the Lord. Fall away from the Lord. And, and as someone who's Calvinistic, you know, I don't believe that, that you can lose your salvation. I believe in perseverance of the saints, but perseverance of the saints is persevering by continuing to surrender to his lordship no matter what the world throws at us. And beloved, if you're down for this vision, that's an awesome strategy. It unleashes each of you to be who God has called you to be. And as shepherd and pastors, our job, Ephesians, is to equip you, shepherd you, guide you, and love you. And I am so excited because I know many of you, you know, even though this is a big church, you, you stick around for 15 years, you get to know people, you get to know their children, you get to know people. And I love you guys because I know you guys love the Lord. And I know and I've seen how powerful of a witness we are when the Spirit activates each and every one of you to pursue him and to pursue others for Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are our Lord. You are the master. You're coming back to gather us at any moment. You tell us about tribulation. You tell us about disasters. You tell us about war. And Lord, we even see the stress of our everyday lives. Help us this morning to see that you're calling us to surrender to you and to live for you no matter what. So Father, I pray that if there's anybody in here this morning who has not surrendered to you as their personal Lord and Lord, Father, I pray, Lord, that they would come to you now, that you would save them, and as they surrender to you as Lord, that you would become their Savior also. And, and, and Father, I pray for the rest of us who are struggling and, and, and been journeying through this Christian life, Lord, we need you desperately. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means individually in our lives, in our success and in our struggle to live for you because you are our master. And Lord, help us to experience your love in the midst of all this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.